Welcome to Chewing the Fat, the Yale Sustainable Food Program's podcast that looks at the big, complicated world of food and agriculture. On this week's episode, we go across the world again and spotlight another country, Italy. Sharing about Italian culinary history with us is Karima Moyer-Noki, food historian and professor at the University of Siena and the University of Rome, Tor Vergata. Karima's 2015 book shares a title with our podcast. It's called Chewing the Fat, an Oral History of Italian Foodways from Fascism to Dolce Vitae. Her newest book, The Eternal Table, A Cultural History of Rome, was published in March of this year. Take a listen as she chats with podcast manager Josh Kimmelman. Welcome, Karima. Thank you very much for having me. First off, let's talk about this wonderful coincidence with the title of your most (laughs) recent book and our podcast. Where does the phrase chewing the fat come in for you? Why did you decide to use it in your book's title? Well, it's an expression of British origin from the 1800s, and I chose it because it reflects the informality of the interviews that I carried out, and I wanted to emphasize that aspect of it because that was so much at the heart of the work that I was doing as opposed to a traditional sort of history tome. Your most recent book... That second part of the title is An Oral History of Italian Foodways from Fascism to Dolce Vita. What are foodways? How would you define that for us? Well, it's interesting how food studies is so terribly recent. And as scholar Andrew McGowan has said in his writing so very succinctly, history has been written through the ages as if no one ever ate. And so (laughs) food studies in particular, culinary historians, are trying to correct that aspect. Foodways, if you look at a spell check program, it's still going to be underlined in red, which I think emphasizes this lack of acceptance still of food studies. Foodways takes its cues from the word folkways and includes the anthropology, sociology, politics, the history, and the practices all surrounding what goes on in food. So therefore, you need to wear all sorts of different hats when you are a food historian. It's not about what people are making, but why they're making it and how meaning gets carried on then through time and changes and evolves over time, along with tastes and how those things are culturally and politically influenced, as well as from conditions like immigration or the lack of it. Mm. Also, the, the geomorphology itself of what is available, what can be grown, what hardiness zones one is in. Those are all kinds of things that come together with foodways and food studies. Delving a little bit more specifically into the way that you let foodways interact with oral history in your work, your book focuses on two things not taken seriously by traditional history, oral history, and food, like you just said. So in the book, you say historians have typically labeled oral history quaint and anecdotal and thus unreliable and frivolous because you're highlighting women's voices. That Mm -hmm. comes into play even more. I'm actually writing my senior thesis right now on teddy bears, which are also (laughs) this seemingly frivolous thing. I'm especially interested in investigating things that seem quaint and anecdotal and frivolous. So how do you see those two things, oral history and Italian foodways, both seemingly non-serious things according to traditional history, how do you see them providing windows into history? 
Well, first of all, let me talk about my subjects who spanned all walks of life. And it was important then to get a sample from north to south and different sociopolitical orientations. But within that, most of the people that I interviewed, which also reflects what most of the people are or were represented, are people who didn't necessarily have an education. There was, for some reason, a belief that four years of schooling was considered enough for girls. So the voice of the less educated woman then gets left by the wayside. They didn't leave literary records. They weren't politically active and involved. And these were the people who were living these foodways then that got swept under the table after the war fascism became this terrible blot on history that everyone wanted to go on and forget. In this context, oral history is the way that this is going to be revealed. Now, oral history has also suffered, like food studies, not having been taken seriously because these are not experts and how do they remember, but the value of it is the way that they remember and how that memory gets taken on and the fact that, yes, it is mixed with the benefit of hindsight, with having heard from their own parents and, in this case, about fascism because the people that I was interviewing were mostly in their 90s, some of them in their late 80s. But I couldn't go too far back in time because people were simply not alive. But <laughs> they had a memory of hearing from their parents as well. So what you get here is an aspect of what is truthfulness and the truthfulness and the desire to bring out a story, which is not a yarn. It's not anything that's made up as in storytelling, but recounting a, a personal experience and how that was lived. Now, if oral history is going to be considered something that's not worth looking at because it's biased. I believe that you could say the exact same thing, though, about the way many standard or traditional histories are written. They're written by certain scholars who already have a certain belief and an approach that they believe in, written in a certain political time. If, for example, a person from the extreme left is writing a standard history of fascism, and they're Italian, they're going to have a certain approach to that. So certainly, when you're talking about truthfulness, then, and the value of oral history, the continuum of truthfulness is bookended by fallacy and truth. And as interdependent beings, we require truthfulness, but are skeptical of the existence of truth. Given the fallibility of the human mind, projections of cultural perspective, and the inevitability of experiential filters. But they offer a window onto truthfulness, regardless of their grounding in indisputable fact. And unfortunately, right now in Italy, they're still not willing or ready to look at fascism and talk to people who are this age. They are slipping away very quickly, just from mm. my own book, from the, um, the brief amount of time since it's been published, Five of the women have died. Mm. So this is the time to get that record. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, my, my grandfather is a Holocaust survivor and part mm. of a generation that that's constantly discussed right. in, a, in a certain community as well, that that, that record needs to get um, obtained. So that, right. that makes a lot of sense to me. And um, that's also the difference as well of what's going on in Germany, that um, which is the opposite, that they 
want to look at it and pick it apart, um, write about it, and and that same thing is not going on um, mm. so much in in Italy. Huh. That's not something I realized before. Mm. You know, I'm finishing my senior thesis in history as well, and it's so intriguing to me this idea that oral history is considered this unreliable mm-hmm. source because most primary documents, most sources for history are similarly unreliable. Um, right, right. Even just like a lot of my sources are newspaper articles, and mm-hmm. most of them present wildly inaccurate skewed facts, very well. skewed opinions, yeah. mm-hmm. very ridiculous things, and that's part of why they're interesting. Just goes to show how, how ridiculous some of these these uh, norms can be. Yeah, and, and eliminating um, the voice of people who actually lived through an experience as unreliable mm. is also needs to be reexamined. Yeah, yeah mm. that's particularly because not everybody's writing down things. And just because it's not written down doesn't mean it's any less legitimate. Right. Um, and in this case, we're talking about people who sometimes can't. When I went and did these interviews, sometimes the son or daughter of whoever I was interviewing had to sign the release form for them. Right. Um, I remember uh, Luigina, who's from the North, and she asked me, I, I gave her the form and I explained what it was. And she paused for a moment and said, I can't remember how to make the L. So of her wow. name. Wow. So, yeah. that, that is a funny little detail for yeah. her to have specified. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, so thinking about that, actually, that, that educational aspect, you know, one thing that struck me when I read your, your work was you say that Italian cookery is now considered to be one of the few classless cuisines. And two days ago at, at the first of your three talks here um, this week at Yale, you said that now only the rich can afford to eat like peasants. And I, I noticed this phenomenon too in other contexts. It was really apparent to me in Peru's Sacred Valley where I worked this summer. And I'd love to get your take on this, especially given the diverse set of subjects you have with very diverse class backgrounds and educational backgrounds, it's particularly interesting to me, this idea of a classless cuisine. Mm -hmm. Um, So why are the rich eating like peasants? And why is Italian cuisine classless? How would you complicate those ideas? Well, part of this is a passage of time that the fatigue of what it was like to live in rural areas, uh, enough time has passed that we are now able to romanticize that past in an urban context and applied to the rural context. Um, mm. So not necessarily people who lived that, but who are looking back at it and remembering it, sifting out what they want to remember about it, what they want to think about it, and applying it to now. And, and often with this belief that now is somehow unwholesome, um, and that then was wholesome. While you can, you can select a few beans that people were eating and put them in a package and charge a lot of money for them, that's one aspect that is part of the nostalgia industry, and there's a lot of money to be made, for, made on that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, uh, talking about, about the cuisine in Italy being classless, though, now, is because people can afford to eat. So what was going on before, if you'd consider the 19th century, it was a time when you have people moving into the middle classes with 
Italy also becoming a country. The cuisine that people are, are looking at in cookbooks so that they can learn how to eat like their betters, as it were, um, the cookbooks were very much still looking towards France. And then mm. what happens in fascist Italy is that sort of isolationist, except for then in 1938 when Italy allied with, um, with Hitler's Germany. What you have is an exaltation of the previously, I want to call them not poor foods, but low status foods, which were the foods that were not found in French cookbooks, pasta polenta and rice in particular. And women came out and were embracing this privation for the betterment of the patria. And so that kind of was a movement into Italian food and exalting Italian food. Um, and at the same time, after World War II then, there was a great, great exodus from the rural south to the industrial north, hmm. which moved people as well into eating in a different way. Um, right. So you have a blending and a moving together of this. Now, classless means that some of those class distinctions in that middle classes were eating like, like the French or trying to eat in a, in a French international style. That changed, but the quantity and quality necessarily of the, of the food that people are eating, that's not classless. Of course. So right. um, when you've got truffles that cost 70 euros an ounce or, or so, um, not everyone's eating those unless they're going out and digging them up themselves. Um, so it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a very relative saying that it's, that it's a, a classless cuisine, though. Yeah, no, I noticed the same thing in Peru this summer. It was yeah. it was weird. It was the first time I had really encountered it to that degree mm, um, mm. because there's a similar romanticization going on there where okay. especially in the Sacred Valley, there's kind of this heritage that people are very excited about, you know, the the kind of like indigenous folks there, the the like ancient Incan heritage there. So it's there are these restaurants popping up that are trying to kind of serve peasant food. Exactly. But exactly. they're serving it at prices inaccessible to Peruvians, right? right. It's only for tourists. Right. Um, and that's really bizarre. Uh, but it, yeah. I'm sure it's also happening all over the world. It's just like not something I had thought about in quite that way, but it right. was shoved in my face. Um, right, right. And, and I, I, this is a problem that I have with the term uh, cucina povera, which literally translated would be poor cuisine. Um, first of all, equating poverty with a cuisine because poverty is not a cuisine. Mm -hmm. And I can see talking about the cucina popolare, which is about popular cuisine, people who are actually eating. But then when you go to a so-called rustic restaurant um, that are serving up mounds of, you know, a pasta fagioli, as people like to call it pasta fazul, uh, um, hmm. which is the term from, from the South, um, another oh, I didn't know that. aspect of being ro romantic. But you can go into a restaurant and pick and choose your rustic poor foods that you want and then the next day eat something else. It wasn't a choice. You were eating the same thing basically every day. I have interviews with women from the North who had polenta every meal, every single day. And sure, I'm not saying don't eat polenta, but the romanticizing it as if people lived better at a, in a different time and the, the myth of simple abundance. So right. that one really gets me. Yeah. yeah. 
you're reminding me of something that you you said in your your talk two days ago, which is you know to paraphrase what you you said, tradition without awareness of history and openness to change is stereotype. Right, right. And I can understand the importance of choosing what's going to be traditional and and um, selecting the objects of pride, how that creates community. Um, but in in this particular case of eliminating an, an entire generation's memories, their memories of food, and how that did contribute to to what came later. Italian cuisine, as a lot of Italian culinary scholars will say, Italian cuisine doesn't exist. And it was created basically after World War II, Italian cuisine as we know Wild. it. Wild. Um, and, and very much coming out of that Mussolini's trying to create a, a sense of nation um, and how women picked that up and brought that um, because it was that sort of food that was being cooked at home that became sort of exalted and removing that particular piece of 20-year history from the picture is deleterious to understanding then uh, um, Italian food today. The idea of Italian cuisine, that people like to say it doesn't exist, um, there is something that does exist, and it moves through time. And I think with authenticity, what we're not allowing is for there to be an evolution. But Evolution doesn't mean that you can just pick and choose which time periods existed and which didn't. Mm. Yeah, so so actually thinking about this idea of Italian cuisine existing, not existing, you know, one moment that really intrigued me in your book, you know, as an American Jew, it was very interesting to see one of your interview subjects, uh, Renata, who's not Jewish, talking about Italian Jewish cooking and specifically saying... Roman food doesn't exist without Roman Jewish cooking traditions. I was surprised to see that. I knew about, you know, Italian Jews and, and a rich heritage there, but I hadn't thought of it as something integral to Italian or Roman cooking, or even culture for that matter. It's not something that I had thought about. And I'm curious about how people not traditionally considered Italian or Roman fit into Italy's culinary history and its foodways. So how is foreign food seen or approached in Italy? today or historically? Making a distinction between um, Roman Jews, which are a, an indigenous, they're considered an indigenous group, and then the incoming Jews with the Iberian expulsion, and because in that period of time, the ghetto wasn't set up in Rome. But she in particular, Renata in particular, was exalting Roman food, I think also because of a bad memory that she had of going to school and that from one day to the next, the Jewish children were suddenly just not there. Mm. And she has a very stark uh, had, because she also just died last year, um, had a very stark memory of that happening, mm. which I think made her want to exalt the importance of um, Roman Jewish food because she does give examples that are not within the dietary laws, uh, right? Yeah, carbonara that was really funny. as well, um, which which has pork in it. But I think because she wants to feel that sharing so much. Mm. Um, but the the but anyway, in nineteen in nineteen thirty eight, Mussolini, as part of his pact with Hitler, was forced to adapt the racial laws, 
And so those went into effect, and Jewish children had to be taken out of school. Mm. So, but Roman Jewish food is part of what I call the triple matrix of um, the cucina romanesca, which would be um, 19th century, what came out in the 19th century in, in Rome. So you have the food of the country, the um, quinto quarto, which is the influence of they set up in the 19th century, a very large meat processing uh, plant in the center of Rome, a lot of people working there, and they were given, they were paid also in kind with the what was called the fifth quarter of the animal, which were, of course, the offal or, or the, the organ meats, let's say. Mm, yeah. Okay, so that was another part of it. And then um, the food from, from the countryside, of which the carbonara was part of that tradition. But in Italy today, unless you go to a very large city, Milan, I wouldn't even say Rome necessarily. There is foreign food. Um, there's Ethiopian restaurant. Certainly a lot of kebab, but that's, um, that's a different kind. That's a different social phenomenon. But it's a mono culinary culture in Italy that's very suspicious of foreign food. Hmm. When I moved to Italy, I was very shocked by this, and I became very interested and involved in the aspect of the myth-busting. After having been there for so long and watching the deification of Italian food, at the same time watching the decline of the quality of it and the, the um, cultural tourism that was going on around food, the different efforts to maintain these traditions, which is all well and good, but in the end, what you have is that you're creating these food theaters, food museums, and I mean that in the sense of what's going on in restaurants and in tourism, of maintaining some idea about these foods. Mm. And food mm, service, let's call it, because it does include going to agriturismi, where you go and you stay on someone's farm, um, which is rife throughout Italy. But these, this food service is very much catering to the foreign people who coming in who are not looking for foreign food, right. Italians who are skeptical of foreign foods and who have maybe been abroad or seen it on television um, and are willing to buy it in that extremely tiny foreign food section um, of the supermarket in packages that... They're not frightening kinds of packages, but mm. packaging that will appeal to someone who doesn't want something that's too ethnic looking. Right. And at the same time, I have to applaud these small efforts because they are an attempt to allow for the existence of that and break down cultural barriers through food. But it's these foods that often we, we love... I mean, there are some serious political problems going on with so many countries. Yeah. Let's talk about, you know, or Mexico and India and, um, and Italy, just the same, and an and extreme right um, government coming in. Mm, yeah. Um, the mafia moving into food right now because it's, it's rendering better than, than their mainstays of drugs and prostitution, falsifying food. Um, most typically the, the olive oil, which is vegetable oil dyed green. Whoa. Um, making a lot of money on that. Um, so, but 
while eating and enjoying these foods, the the concomitant may be turning a blind eye or just putting bl- blinders on to what's actually going on in the country. Yeah. And leaving that, mm, yeah. This reminds me a little bit also that I was intrigued when you mentioned Ethiopian food in Italy, given their history mm. of trying to colonize Ethiopia. Oh, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah. So shifting gears a little bit mm-hmm. um, as we move towards the close, I am interested to hear about the book you have coming out next year. What can you tell us about it? Um, my My book coming out in March is called the um, the Eternal Table, a cultural history of food in Rome. And looking in particular, I have some through lines, one of which I feel is is um, very important to talk about now, how Rome and Roman food was created by immigration from their inception with Aeneas and the Latins coming down through the Po Valley, settling into the area that was Latium Vetus, and what they were going to find in that area and how those materials were going to create Rome. So immigration, also the the extremely important and befuddling, bedeviling topic of um, authenticity. Mm. <laughs> because we like to we like to feel a certain continuity that things haven't changed, that there are things that are stable. There are clear answers. Um, but looking at the entire history of food in Rome, it's in constant flux and things are constantly changing sure. yeah. to to the point where um, how many of us are going to look at Apicius, which is the um, recipe compilation that came out of ancient Rome, the only one, and recreate these dishes that are made with things like fig peckers, dormice, and cow udders. Whoa. I mean, they're simply not a- appealing to us. And so, sure... You're also going to find beans in there, but then where's the pasta and where is, you know, all of the things that we think about Italian food? Hmm. Well, Karima, we like to conclude chewing the fat by asking our guests to dispel myths about food that maybe irk or frustrate them or interest them. So keeping in mind that much of your work already does this, this myth-busting work, um, are there any other ideas out there that you'd like to challenge? One in particular is um, the Mediterranean diet, the development of the Mediterranean diet, whether we're talking about it with a, um, a small d or a capital D. If the Mediterranean diet were considered a diet with a capital D, just like the South Beach diet is, I would have less problems with it. But it's the need to attach it to a place and attach it to a time and say that it's always been the same, or even that it is a thing. It's a creation that happened. And sure, we should all stop eating processed food and eat more vegetables and fruits. But the amount of power that is behind that, and I'm talking about personal ambition, uh, brought out uh, first and foremost in in the case of the Mediterranean diet through Ansel Keys, how it was then picked up by the Italians and just the myths that that circulate around the basic message of eat your vegetables mm. and how many tour packages and um, products that that sells, menu items, and then in particular olive oil. Because when you look at the history of Italian food and what the people were eating, these people whose longevity is being looked at, 
most people were eating lard and pork fat as their mainstay fat. The, on the wealthier table, you have butter. Olive oil was in very few areas uh, for a very long time, extremely expensive, much more difficult to cultivate or to, um, to process, and not an identity marker until after um, World War II wow. when ideas about cholesterol and having your lipid profile checked came to the fore, again, through professors at Harvard University and Ansel Keys who made that to focus because cracking that nut of what was causing um, this perceived idea of cardiovascular disease, which also was coming to the fore for another two reasons, because people were not dying of infectious diseases so much anymore. And so we were moving into a time where degenerative diseases seemed to spike then in the 1940s the development of the EKG, the ability to, to test for serum cholesterol. Hmm. Yeah. So that is one of the things that I dispel, as well as ideas about coffee and pasta as well. I'm doing mm. my pasta lecture today talking about right. how long it to took that. for pasta to become an identity marker for Italians. Pizza as well. It right. was considered a dirty food, a poor food associated with um, with Naples, which was then in turn associated with cholera. Yeah. Oh, so, I've read a book about that. That was a not a pleasant city to be right, in. Right. Right. Yeah. Wow. So many more things like that. From the Yale Sustainable Food Program, this has been Chewing the Fat. To hear more from Karima, you can follow her on Twitter at Moyer Noki. This episode was produced by myself, Ashia Johnny, Josh Kimmelman, and Thomas Hagen. Mixing by Ryan McAvoy of the Yale Broadcast Studio. Music by Eddie Joe Antonio and Luis De Felice. Program support by Jacqueline Munno, Jeremy Oldfield, and Mark Bomford. If anything said today gave you something to chew on, leave us a comment or email us at sustainablefood at yale.edu. We're always excited to connect with our audience near and far. For now, wishing you goodbye and good eats.